Welcome to the Clued in Mystery Podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Brooke. And we both love mystery. Brooke, I know this is a very exciting episode for you. Yes, I happen to be a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, so I'm so excited for today. Me too. You know, I can't remember. I must have read Poe in school. Like, Mm -hmm. he must be one of the kind of, you know, when they're teaching literature in in high school, one of the authors that we read. So I I, like I I don't remember my first introduction to Poe, but I know I've read a a bunch of his stuff and I've I've reread some of it in anticipation of our conversation today. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. So let's get started. That sounds great. Edgar Allan Poe was born on January 19th, 1809 to David and Elizabeth Poe, who were both traveling actors. It is said that his mother was a wonderful actor, his dad, and not so much. The couple had two other children, a girl and a boy, and were quite poor. A mysterious end came to their household when David Poe deserted the family and Elizabeth died shortly thereafter. Edgar was only three years old. The three children were taken in by various friends and family. Edgar specifically went to live with the wealthy John and Francis Allen and took the name Edgar Allen. Mrs. Allen doted on the little boy who is said to have been a beautiful child with large dark eyes and shiny dark curls. He was extremely precocious and able to read and recite verse by the age of six. His years with the Allens were the only time in Edgar's life when he was not living hand-to-mouth, battling poverty. The Allens moved to England for several years when Edgar was young and sent him to the finest boarding schools where he excelled. He received high marks in Latin and French, among other subjects. The school he attended was built in the Gothic style with large windows, black desks, and dark hallways, no doubt inspiring him in his later stories. Edgar was a strong, healthy boy and also excelled in athletics. As an older teen, he began having difficulties with Mr. Allen because he discovered Edgar had accumulated a $2,000 gambling debt. And although that doesn't sound like much, it's a whopping 50 grand in today's currency. Mr. Allen refused to continue paying his tuition. So Edgar returned to the U.S., And he continued to find it hard to make ends meet, and so he joined the army. However, this was not a successful venture either. After several problems, which were likely caused by more gambling and more drinking, Edgar was court-martialed and left military service. It was at this time that he started his writing career and published Tamerlane and Other Poems. This was also the beginning of his employment at literary journals in various cities such as Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York City. His work included editing material for publication and writing literary criticism. He was known as a harsh critic of his peers, such as Dickens, Rufus Griswold, who quite literally hated Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and James Fenimore Cooper. During this period, he began using the name we recognize, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe began living with an aunt on his father's side, Maria Clem, his young cousin Virginia, his brother, and their grandmother Poe around this time. This living arrangement was likely for financial reasons, as most of his writing was netting a mere $10 or so per piece, making his income very sporadic. And there again, that $10 is maybe around $375. 
Poe eventually married Virginia when she was just 13 and he was 26. And while it was not unheard of at this time to marry a first cousin, the large age difference was definitely frowned upon. It's not clear if the couple had a physical relationship. Their letters to one another do not indicate romance, and they refer to each other as sis and brother. Still, it was harmful, even then, to Poe's already tenuous reputation. Poe's brother died in 1831, and then in 1847, Virginia also died after a lengthy illness with tuberculosis. Understandably, Poe's already fragile mental health further deteriorated with the loss of his wife. And even though The Raven had been published in 1845, he was now famous and a revered author, his pattern of self-sabotage continued. He would often be fired or quit just after an employer had given him a raise or a promotion. He planned to start his own literary journal for several years, but it never got off the ground. Poe's death is a mystery in and of itself. He died on October 7, 1849 in Baltimore after several stressful and traumatic days. His cause of death is still argued. Was it a heart attack? Results of his alcoholism? The consequences of a fight? We don't know. The doctor in attendance said Poe continued to ask for someone named Reynolds. This person has never been identified. He's buried at Westminster Hall Cemetery in Baltimore, Maryland. Poe's relatively small body of work has left an immense impact on the world of literature. He's called the architect of the modern short story, the grandfather of detective fiction, and he popularized the gothic and horror genres in the U.S., The Edgar Award is given each year by the Mystery Writers of America for distinguished work in the mystery genre. That is fascinating. His his whole life, I think, it sounds to me like it was a a pretty troubled life. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe you see some of that in in some of his stories, right? And and the whole mystery around his death is just absolutely fascinating. I agree. I agree. He did like in comparison to, first of all, this is the first American author that we've discussed. We've been discussing the Brits um, up until this point. Um, So that's kind of a different situation. And also the time period that we um, find him in, it's earlier than the other uh, authors Mm -hmm. we've talked about. But he also did not have a luxurious life. I don't know if I really want to say that Agatha and Doyle had luxurious lives, but they definitely were very comfortable. And that's different with Poe. He lived a hard life. He saw a lot of suffering and disease and um, and poverty. That's certainly the impression the impression that I have. But you know, thinking about his bio, even thinking about the lives that. Agatha Christie and and Dorothy Sayers and and um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lived. I feel like my life is really boring. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, sure. This is a different kind of intrigue and excitement, I guess, and somewhat more sad and melancholy. But still, he had an exciting life. And the, his time in England, when he was going to the boarding schools, you know, he won swimming competitions and he was able to meet people who went on to become famous. And he spent time where Shakespeare had written his work and a lot of very exciting things, just like the other people we've talked about. And it, it creeps into their work. I mean, it, it obviously shapes the way that they're able to, to write their stories. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that he's kind of the 
considered the grandfather of detective fiction. When I was reading up about him, I thought it really interesting that the word detective didn't actually exist. Like it wasn't something that was that was used. So he came up with, I, I don't think he, he used the word detection. He used another word, uh, ra- I don't know how to pronounce it, ratio, ratio nation. Yeah. Playing off the word rational. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ra- ratio nation. Yeah, I don't know. But you can see in the stories that are his his detective stories uh, where he's really laid the groundwork mm-hmm. for that genre, right? Absolutely. And he's got the sidekick mm-hmm. and the, you know, the methodical analysis of the cases that are that are presented to him. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a reader at the time reading something like that for the first time. Right. We don't have the pleasure of it being new to us. And it sincerely is a template. You could look, you can listen to Murders in the Room Org and think, oh, well, this is precisely what Doyle took and ran with it. And I mean, you might say perfected it because there are parts of Murder in the Room Org that you can see it needs more polish. It needs to like get the series of events a little bit cleaner, but it was a template. And we don't have the pleasure of reading that genre for the first time. Now, when we pick up a mystery novel, we know, okay, this is first, we're going to see the crime. And then we're going to see the investigator and his sidekick go through the interviews or gather the clues. And then we're going to have the denouement, you know, we know, which is still fun. It's still fun. But yeah, to be someone to read that for the first time, it must have been so exciting. And pretty sensational, I would think. I have to imagine so. Yeah. And one of his mystery stories, the uh, Marie Roger. Yes. That was taken from an actual crime, right? Mm -hmm. So it was based on the body of a beautiful woman uh, found, I guess, in the Hudson River in New York or in New Jersey. And the facts of the story that he wrote are based largely on that case. And that case was very sensational. Right. And, mm-hmm. and actually, I think is remains unsolved. Oh, so fascinating. And so I read something that he came up with mm-hmm. a theory and so was taking advantage of the popularity of this mystery and wrote his own take on it. And and that's how it, it got published. Right. And, and so he was, you know, probably one of the first people to rip from the headlines mm-hmm. his his fictional work. Right. Right. Yeah. He was said to love ciphers. And in his work at the literary journals, he would uh, dare readers to send him a cipher that he would not be able to figure out. And so that kind of makes me think that he saw that unsolved mystery in the headlines and was sort of took it on as a challenge. Like, well, let's try to figure out what happened here and put all the pieces together. And little did he know in the process, he's creating an entire genre of fiction. It's, it's just so neat. He's such a creative guy. And it, it really, it's sort of maddening to me on one level that he could never like get his life together and really use that to its full potential. He was sort of always, like I said, self-sabotaging himself, wallowing. I mean, I, I hate to say that because he definitely had so much struggle in his life, but it was like he could never rise above it. And I was just thinking about how I I wished he had lived longer and created more. And I wished I wished that he could have used these talents more. And then on the same side, it's like if he had been able to 
take a hold of his life, would we have the works that we do? Because it was something about him that created this very melancholic, macabre set of stories. And we wouldn't have it if he wasn't the person that he was. So it makes me sad. And yet I'm so thankful that we have what we do because they're they're wonderful stories and they tap into those things that we all have, fear, fear of death, mystery, suspense. We all experience those emotions and he could grasp it so well. Yeah. We have the stories he wrote because of the life mm-hmm. that he had. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's a a pity that he was so self-destructive. But, you know, the kind of mystery surrounding his death, I wonder if that didn't contribute to some of his popularity. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I I imagine that that mystery would have been quite gripping. Sure. He obviously didn't plan that. Right. It wasn't it wasn't intentional, but may have contributed to some of the legacy. Exactly. That that is associated with him. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. In some ways, you think, what other way could this man possibly go? You know, it's like such a fitting end to it wouldn't have made sense for him to live to the ripe old age of 80 or, you know, die peacefully in his sleep. I mean, in a way, this sounds terrible, but I think he would have wanted it this way because he enjoyed that grittier side of life. And it just honestly was sort of the perfect ending to to his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of those authors who continues to be relevant today, mm-hmm. right? I don't remember when I first read anything by him. I'm, I'm sure it was you know, in, in school, he would have been one of the authors that, mm-hmm. um, that we had to read. Uh, you know, we might've done the Raven for poetry or something like that, but you know, he's, he's just someone that kind of, kind of like Sherlock Holmes, right? Someone that yeah. everybody knows about, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when I was looking for, to see what my library had for me to, you know, refresh my, my memory on some of his works, I came across some middle grade fiction that is called The Misadventures of Edgar and Allan Poe. And it's twin brothers who are descendants of Edgar Allan Poe. And, um, you know, they get into hijinks that... You know, middle middle grade boys get into. How fun! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I'm interested in that series because you know I have uh, a young reader in our mm-hmm. in our household, and and so that may be a way to kind of introduce him to Poe. That's definitely something that I'm going to check out. Is this is this series? That sounds great. I am too. And I love that writers are keeping him alive with our younger readers. I think that um, you're right. He is, especially here in the U.S., It's he's somebody that we always read, maybe in middle school, but definitely in high school. And so this is great, keeping him alive. I think that Lemony Snicket, doesn't he play off? I think that there's some characters' names that are um, Poe-esque. And I it's been a long time since I've read, but I just love that we can do some adaptations of his work, especially for the younger audience. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say Lemony Snicket was definitely sort of gothic, mm-hmm. gothic-esque yeah. horror for children. Yeah. Yeah. I love that series, um, by the I way. I remember trying to describe that series to, to someone. She said that this isn't funny. I was like, no, no, it is. She's like, no, it's not. I was like, no, it is. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. This is supposed to be, isn't this good fun? All this 
death and destruction. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tragic tales of these orphans. But yeah, like you can, you, well, I was just going to say you can draw a line, right? Yeah. Oh, and, and absolutely. Yeah. Um, Lemony Snicket was 100% inspired by Poe. You know, I also think one reason that as students we read Poe is because we're back to that topic that we brought up with Agatha Christie is it's very easy to read. He writes very short, concise sentences. It's very clear. The language isn't difficult. They're simple to read, even if they have maybe some plot lines that aren't always suitable for kids. It's really simple. It's almost like a journalistic style that he writes in. And I I really enjoy that about it too. So you can, it's accessible for younger audiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as you say, the the subject matter Mm -hmm. is maybe not necessarily appropriate for for really young audiences but yeah i i think you know i think isn't there a a simpson episode Mm -hmm. simpsons episode where lisa right it's the telltale heart yes yes i think they redo the telltale heart yeah and she's you know that little intelligent nerd so she yeah she's the perfect character it was probably one of their halloween Mm -hmm specials, right? But, you know, so apart from the influence that he had on other authors, so I know Doyle and Christie both acknowledge that Mm -hmm. he influenced their writing. And I'm sure that's true for for, um, many other authors. And, And as you say, like you can see in any detective fiction or mystery fiction that's written now, whether people know it or not, they're influenced by, right. by mm-hmm. Poe's stories. But there's, you know, still this cultural relevance that Poe has, right? Whether it's a Simpsons episode or these, the middle grade books that I, that I just mentioned, like, I, you know, I think uh, I, I like that he still exists as someone who's not been forgotten. Yes. And um, it's almost the reverse of what we see with Doyle, where um, with Doyle, it's Sherlock Holmes that everyone knows. And maybe there's certainly people that probably wouldn't even be able to name the author that created him, right? And with Poe, we don't really cling to any Mm -hmm. of his characters. Probably people recognize the Raven, but of course, you know, they wouldn't be able to necessarily name any of the characters in his stories, but it's him as the figure. He's sort of um, that poster boy for the tormented artist, you know, or the mad genius. Sometimes you see him just wandering through a scene of a cartoon uh, with his quill and a raven, you know, like mumbling and lamenting about something. He's just, he is a remembered figure. And, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm so glad. I feel like he was such a sad guy and I'm just so glad that we've kept him alive in our, in our literary canon. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that I thought was interesting about him, uh, and this is true again for um, Doyle and for Sayers and to a lesser extent for Christie, but that he wrote in multiple genres, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, That he, he wasn't, he didn't limit himself to a single genre. And I, I think as a, as a writer, that's a really interesting thing to think about other ways to express that creativity or, you know, that it's okay to explore Mm -hmm. other, other ways of writing. Yeah. uh, And maybe necessary, right? Oh, absolutely. And in this day and age, we're sort of steered away from that. But we've seen it time and time again with these classic authors that 
they did that. And I feel like exactly what you said, you know, maybe they would experiment and work on one genre for a while as a way to sort of fill the well for something else. Or in Doyle's situation, one thing paid the bills, but that enabled him to do the other literary work that he really liked. And I think that we can learn something as contemporary authors from that and maybe not take the advice that's being given that, you know, you, you need to stick to one and, and just be very narrow focused in your niche and learn from that. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I, I didn't come across this, but the Baltimore Ravens NFL team, mm-hmm. are they named that mm-hmm. because of Pose association with Baltimore? They are. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not a big sports fanatic, but I do have to root for the Ravens. I'll just, they'll just have to be my team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder how many other professional sports teams are associated with literary figures. I bet zero. I'm going to, I'm going to go with zero, but that's a challenge. I'll do some research and make sure that I'm not fibbing just because of my bias for Poe. But Baltimore has really embraced him. You know, there's a lot of statues and I think several of the museums of his are in Baltimore. I don't think I've ever been to Baltimore, but I think I would like to go on a little, I think I'd like to go on a little literary tour of the U.S. because I think there's probably some, some really interesting places to go that are associated with, with writers and, um, that, you know, at, at some point, maybe, maybe a trip that I do in the future. Yeah. I've never been to the East coast either, but that would be, and I was thinking, Sarah, on our Sayers episode, you shared that, you know, Dorothy Sayers would be one of the six people that you'd like to have dinner with. And I don't know what it says about me, but I would put Poe on my list. It's a, it's a little creepy. I think that he would also be the person, you know, you have the friend who you're always like trying to like make them feel better. I, unfortunately, I think it might be like that. You're like, no, no, you're, you're all black clothing. It's, it's not creepy. You're fine. No, it's all right. Perk up, Poe. I think you might be that kind of a dinner companion, but I'd I'd take it anyway. Cool. The other question that I had, and I didn't look this up, was whether he had spent any time in Paris. Uh, Because I don't I don't remember seeing that in his bio, but he certainly in the Dupin stories, you know, they're all set in Paris and Mm -hmm. he seems to have a pretty good grasp of the way I imagine that the city felt at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. But maybe when he was going to school in England, he went. Perhaps. Yeah, you're right. I haven't ever come across that he spent time there. I do know that during his lifetime, he was actually more famous or more well known for his short stories in France than in the U.S. So he definitely had some French fans and perhaps somebody that he corresponded with. But that's a great point. I don't know, because you're right. He definitely, he makes the city feel real and it comes alive. And that's, you know, if if he'd never actually had been to Paris, that's pretty remarkable Mm -hmm. that he managed to do that without the internet, without a lot of, you know, access to photographs, I'm sure. True. Um, You know, it. He would have, yeah, had to rely, I guess, on on correspondence with people or, or speaking with people who had who had been there to to be able to build that picture mm-hmm. as well as he did. That's a great point. Yeah, we are so we have so much luxury in being able to look up information and research and and yeah, for sure. He he wouldn't have had any of those resources. Well, so Brooke, I think that was a really great conversation uh, and a really interesting man to learn a little bit more about. Yes, that was fun. And and I'm sure that we'll be referencing him in future episodes because he has made such a mark on the genre. Oh, absolutely. So 
Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us on Instagram at Clued in Mystery. You can find us online at cluedinmystery.com. Until next time, I'm Sarah. And I'm Brooke. And we both love mystery. Clued in Mystery is produced by Brooke Peterson and Sarah M. Stephen. Music is by Shane Ivers at silvermansound.com. Visit us online at cluedinmystery.com or social media at cluedinmystery. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or telling your friends. Thank you.